Good morning. Uh, as John said, I'm Zach. Uh, my wife, Emily, is there with our four kids, and we have one on the way. We're due in January. Uh, and I think that I speak for everybody in our church when I say that the views of Aaron Guidry do not necessarily represent the views of Wardville Community Church. So if you've had a chance to meet her, you know that you'll hear some wild things from her. And I just wanted to get that out of the way from the beginning. Now, we are, uh, we're very excited. Um, it, it was just, uh, it was incredible to have the number of voices this morning doubled from what we're used to. Uh, and, and then we sing a song like, Is He Worthy? And the resounding answer from twice the voices is, He is. He is worthy of this. If you have a Bible, uh, turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. As we close out Advent, we're going to consider love this morning. And we aren't the only ones to ruminate on this subject. 30 years ago, Eurodance singer Hathaway famously wondered, what is love? In a similar but earlier quest for that knowledge, Foreigner proclaimed, I want to know what love is. Elton John wrote a whole song simply asking whether or not his listeners have the ability to feel the love tonight. Hallmark has built an entire brand around Christmas's unique ability to help lonely people find true love in a matter of days. And in a twist of irony, our culture often hatefully shouts, love is love, at those who would question modern ethics or ideologies. In a confused world that simultaneously obsesses over love but fundamentally misunderstands love, 1 John 4, verses 7 through 12, represents a breath of fresh air. The Apostle John makes a stunning declaration that God is love, and further, that the love of God took a particular definite form and that it looks a certain way for God's people. So if you would, I'm going to read 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Could we stand in honor of the reading of God's word together? I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Pray with me. God, thank you that we don't have to wonder what your love is and what it looked like. And thank you even more for how you've demonstrated your love in time and space and history in a way that transforms us and makes us into that image. 
thank you for your word that is true and sufficient for your church. In the brief time that we have together, God, we ask for your help so that we might know your word, treasure your word, and live your word. So Spirit of God, please make this time fruitful in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. In verses 7 and 8, the thing that you see is that to know God is to love him and his people. To know God is to love him and his people. Now, as we read that, as a child of the Enlightenment, as a 21st century person, you might have been wondering uh, what, what I wonder sometimes when I read these verses. It's this, what about non-believers? Don't non-believers love? Don't people who don't believe in Jesus, don't like, doesn't a mother, like you, the trope uh, on TV of like the mother lifting the car in love because of the adrenaline, you know, all that for her kids or uh, the, the father sacrificing himself for his children, right? We, we know that unbelievers can love. So does that mean that unbelievers actually know God, right? And the answer is no, right? There's, there's an assumption underneath John's words that he writes here, and it's that his readers have genuinely experienced God's love. John tells them that God is love and that God is the source of love. Any attempt to understand love that does not begin with God will result in error. Any attempt to understand love that does not begin with God will result in error. As creatures, we have to be told about love by God and receive it from God if we're to know it. Right? Love is not whatever society says it is. Love does not look however we decide it should look. Love is from God because God is love and therefore God is what, love is what God says it is and it looks the way that God says that it looks. And what we're gonna see in the following verses uh, is that God was not responding to our love in sending Jesus, right? But his love preceded and created our love as we experienced his love. You look back even at 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, it says this, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us. So there's a sense in which, a real sense in which we would not know what genuine biblical love is if Christ had not come and laid down his life for us. Right? We have to be shown and told what love is and we have to receive love as creatures from God. So the love that John is talking about here, biblical love, let us love one another for love comes from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. That love that he's talking about, biblical love begins with an experience of God's love. That magnificent, powerful love takes a hostile heart and transforms it enabling us to love God. Look at 419, right? We love because he first loved us. That's a statement of ability. We weren't able to love until God loved us. Right? We, we can love because God first loved us. So he, he changes our hostile hearts. He enables us to love him. And then that love compels us to embrace his word and his righteousness. 
Look at chapter three, verse six. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Look at verse nine. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So whatever John says about being born of God and how it relates to love in chapter four is governed by what he says in chapter three about the fact that if we see God, if we've known God, if we've been known by God, if we've been changed by him, it means that we will love his word, we will love his righteousness, right? So God's love takes our dead hearts, brings it to life, transforms it, enables us to love him and causes us to embrace his word and his righteousness. Any notion of love that is hostile to God's authority, rejects his commands or denies his son is not true biblical love. Any notion of love that is hostile to God's authority, rejects his commands or denies his son is not true biblical love as John is talking about here. Loving God means forsaking and rejecting everything contrary to his nature and will, which is most fundamentally self-denial. The man or woman who would love God cannot simultaneously worship self or idols, love what God hates, approve that which provokes his anger. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it's going to say exactly that, where the apostle Paul is defining for us what love is and what love does. 1 Corinthians 13, 6, it, love, does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Loving God means we repudiate everything, self Desires, preferences, sin, disordered loves, and inclinations. We repudiate everything contrary to God. That's what it means to love God. And from this posture of self-denying love for God, the Christian will find springing forth a love for those who have also experienced God's love. Like, look at verse eight. Here's the reasoning of verse eight. Since God is love, then to know him who is love will mean that we overflow with love toward others. If we lack this love, we have cause to question if we know him or if we've experienced his love. In other words, to know God truly is to love him and love his people. God's love was not formless or general, but took a specific shape and meant a definite action. So let's move to verses nine and 10 and let's dig a bit deeper into what God's love looked like. Verses nine and 10, what we see is that Jesus is love incarnate. In this, the love of God was made manifest, was revealed among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. There's a big word at the heart of these two verses that actually shows what God's love looks like. It's the word propitiation. We don't use it very often. Some uh, modern translations have actually dropped that word in favor of another word. But at its heart, what propitiation means is that Jesus uh, died on the cross in the place of sinners as a means of bearing and thus removing from sinners, the wrath, the righteous anger of God. 
That's what propitiation means. He bore the wrath. He was a wrath-removing sacrifice for sinners. And that is what allows sinners to live. Propitiation is what allows sinners to live. And so in these verses, verses 9 and 10, we are implicitly reminded that we were dead in our sins, right? If Christ came, as, as John says, so that we might live, then what does that imply about us before Christ came? We were dead. If he came as a propitiation for sins, what does that mean right? if we were not already under God's wrath for our sins? So we're reminded of both our sinful state and of the penalty for our sinful state in these verses. As we're told that Jesus bore God's righteous anger toward our sins and was punished in our place on the cross, dying so that we might live. God supplied propitiation for us. And he did so because of his love. And he did so to demonstrate his love. Because of his love and as a demonstration of his love. So you ask, someone asks, why did God send Jesus? These two answers are found here in 1 John and they're found in the rest of the New Testament. Why did God send Jesus? Because God loved the world. God loved his people and wanted them to live. Ephesians chapter two, verse four. Right after we're reminded that we're dead in our trespasses and sins, it says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Verse five, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together. So why did God send Jesus? Because of his love. But that wasn't all. It was also to demonstrate, to show to the world what his love looks like. So why did God, why did God send Jesus? He wanted to show his love. We find that in Romans chapter five, verse eight. God demonstrates, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ's death was because of God's love and Christ's death shows God's love to us and to the world. So Christmas is at its core, fundamentally Christmas is a celebration of God's love. We just sang glory to the newborn king. But the reason that we sing glory to the newborn king is not that Jesus stayed forever a baby and is still a baby. It's that that baby grew up, that baby in the manger grew up to become the man upon the cross bearing the sins of the world in his body, dying in their place so that they might live. This is what the love of God looks like. God is love. From eternity past, the Son was consumed with love for the Father and vice versa. So when he came in flesh, Jesus perfectly revealed God's heart. He was the embodiment. Literally, that's what incarnation means, the infleshing of the heart of God. He was the incarnation of love itself. 
He lived his earthly life in self-denying love for his father, lovingly obeying even to the cross. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. From the overflow of his father's love, Jesus perfectly loved others. The fullest expression of that love for others was the giving of himself as a sacrifice to redeem his people. Right? You want to know what God's love looks like. It's not just the baby in the manger, although it is that. It's the cross. Where God's love for God, right? Father to the Son and Son to the Father, God's love for God and God's love for the world is displayed in its fullest measure. It's on perfect display. You want to know what God's heart is like, you look at the cross. God's love looks like propitiation. Merry Christmas. Um, in, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland writes on the same theme. By the way, if you haven't read that book, I cannot commend it highly enough to you. Please do yourself a favor, read that book. This is what he says. A correct understanding of the triune God is not that of a father whose central disposition is judgment and a son whose central disposition is love. We think that sometimes. Secular society thinks that sometimes, that God was a God of judgment in the Old Testament and a God of love in the New Testament. And as you read the Bible, as you become more, a more committed, studied follower, disciple of Christ, you find that is nothing can be further from the truth. That is just flatly false, right? So a correct understanding of the triune God is not that of a father whose central disposition is judgment and a son whose central disposition is love, the heart of both is one and the same. This is, after all, one God, not two. Theirs is a heart of redeeming love, not compromising justice and wrath, but beautifully satisfying justice and wrath. Right? God's love looks like propitiation, dealing with sin, dealing with his wrath. God is love and Jesus is love incarnate. And this, like, so when we talk about God's love, we're talking about a person, right? This is that powerful love that transforms sinners into saints, rebels into worshipers, outcasts into family. That's that love that does that. Love came down. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. God's love was not some nebulous concept, some general like, ah, yes, God loves the world. No, God loves the world and therefore God sent his son that we might live through him by having our sins fully dealt with. God's love looks like propitiation. And God's love toward us means something definite for us as the people of God. So let's move to verses 11 and 12 now. God's love means something definite for us. Beloved, 
if God so loved us, and that so right there, uh, in the original language, that so is, it's not a, like a so of degree. If God loved us that much, right? It's actually also the same as in John three sixteen, where God so loved the world. It's not saying this is how much God loved the world. It's this is the way in which God loved the world. God loved the world thus by sending his son, right? He loved the world in this way that he sent his son. And that's what's going on here. Beloved, if God loved us in this way, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This is what this means for us. It means if Jesus is love incarnate, if Jesus manifests and reveals to the world the heart of God, we become like him. Isn't that what discipleship is? It's becoming more like Jesus. And here, what this means is to become more like Jesus is that we likewise reveal and manifest the heart of God, the loving, generous, charitable, gracious, lavish love of God. We manifest that to one another. This is the outworking of experiencing God's powerful, redeeming love. If God so loved us, we ought to love one another. If you have experienced this love in such a way that you are genuinely changed, there is an understanding here that you should be changed, right? We ought to be like Jesus, both reciprocating God's love to him and then pushing it out toward others in self-denial. Now, verse 11, verse 11 is expressed in terms of obligation, in terms of almost command, as is actually verse 7, let us love one another. And it is that. It, it is not less than that, right? That, that's what that says. We should love one another. We ought to love one another. There's an oughtness to it. But truly, should it not be the most natural impulse of those who understand and have experienced and have been changed by this supernatural, undeserved love? When we are changed by Christ, we begin the process of being formed into the image of Christ. Like I said, that's discipleship. Christ embodied God's love in a unique and unrepeatable way by dying on the cross. So like your job as a believer to be like Christ is not to go find a cross and have somebody nail you to it and say, I love the world. Like that's not your job. That was Jesus's unique, unrepeatable task in this world. That was the way that he perfectly manifested God's love to the world. That's not what we do. But we, thank, yeah, thank goodness, right? But we still die to self every day, right? And we still give ourselves in love for the lost, for our brothers, for our families, for our coworkers, right? We still get, we, we are called to die. We're called to sacrifice for the benefit of others. And in so doing, we become like Christ and we manifest and embody his love. Look at verse 12. Like when you hear verse 12 the right way, it really is incredible. 
Because he begins with no one has ever seen God. Right? No one has ever seen God. And he finishes that by saying, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. In other words, nobody has ever seen God. But if we love one another, people see God. We don't become God. Like they don't, it's not like Eastern mysticism. We're like, I'm God, you're God, we're all God. Like it's pantheism. No, but like God abides in us. This is amazing. The spirit of God indwells a person and God's heart, God's loving heart can't help but get out. And when it does, people see God. They see God at work. Undeniably, they see God working, loving. We're his hands and feet extending his love toward everybody. Nobody has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. We manifest his loving heart toward others. I mean, if I can say it this way, we have the great privilege of embodying, incarnating the the loving heart of God to the world around us. Not exactly like Jesus did, right? So let's be really careful theologically to say that it's not like Jesus did in every way. But we have that privilege of showing what God is like by the way that we love, especially here, the way that we love one another, the church. But that's not all he says in verse 12. Like that's amazing enough. What does he say next? And his love is perfected in us. I think of all the places that we might misunderstand what's being said here, maybe maybe the end of verse 12 is the part we might be most prone to misunderstand. And I think it's actually because of how we view the word perfect or perfected versus the sense that it carries in, in the original language. And so I found some commentaries really helpful this week in reminding me of the meaning of that word perfected. So when we say that's perfect, what we mean is that has no imperfections. Like it's as good as it can possibly be. When, when often the Bible uses the word perfect, it actually carries the sense of it, is, uh, it has achieved the goal it was striving toward. It's gotten to the goal. It's reached its goal. In other words, when we love one another, God's love hits its target. God has purposes for his love to you that extend beyond just you. God absolutely wants to demonstrate his love to you individually. Yes, amen, glory to God. God wants to show his love to you. But what's being said here is that's not all God wants to do. God wants to show his love through you to others. He wants to manifest what his heart is like to others through you. Friends, that is a privilege. You get to join Jesus in revealing God who is love to the world. Uh, one of, I, I played golf on Friday. I played golf with a buddy. Excuse me. It was the, 
It was the busiest I have ever seen Oak Wing, ever. I, I, I'm just, Thursday, it was not busy. I went to hit a bucket of balls Thursday just to make sure I didn't look like a real dummy on Friday. Uh, didn't help a whole bunch. But I went on Thursday and I hit some balls and it was dead. There was nobody there. Friday, everybody was, I guess everybody got off work early Friday and just said, you know what I'm gonna go do? I'm gonna go play golf and slow this guy down while he wants to play golf. So we went and played golf and the buddy that I was with said, hey, I invited a coworker of mine. And then I was like, okay, fine, that's fine. I uh, hope he's good. I don't wanna be slowed down. And then uh, I'm, this is just my heart. Y'all, this, this, is, this is where I am in the process, okay? Um, and, and then I found out not only that, we actually got paired with somebody that none of us had ever met before. Uh, and I really, really didn't want to have to meet someone and make small talk. Like, I'm here with this guy to hang out with him and like, I, no joke, like have good deep conversation about the Lord. Like I don't wanna be doing small talk with like people I don't know. That's just, again, just me. Um, but I also in, in the, so we're on the putting green, we're about to tee off and my, my water bottle is in the cart and the way that it's facing is out, it's facing me. I'm, I'm looking at it, it's sitting right there and I see this. I don't, you can't read that from here if you can. Uh, you have really nice eyesight, and I would love to trade with you. Um, it says, Jesus changes everything. So I'm like putting my putter back uh, with all of the angst of I'm about to get slowed down, and I'm about to have to like make small talk with people. I don't know. And I'll, I'll read this, and it says, Jesus changes everything. And in that moment, like I've been, I've been studying 1 John 4 about how I am supposed to, as a believer, as an emissary of God, I am supposed to display God's loving heart to all those around me. And here I am, I'm like pouting at my golf bag because I don't wanna play golf with strangers. And it just says, Jesus changes everything. And in that moment, like Jesus changed me because I was reminded, like I'm not here for me. Like God's love toward me uh, doesn't terminate on me, doesn't stop with me. God wants to use me to show his love to others. Even strangers, I don't care to play golf with. And so we made small talk the whole time. And, uh, and at, at the end, I was able to pray for him. I prayed the gospel over him. Uh, and, and it really ended up being just a wonderful day of, of golf. And God was gracious in that. And prayerfully, like I was able to show God's love to this man that I will probably never see again uh, unless he is in heaven with us. Um, and, and that's what this is all about. Like God's love, uh, it, it was God's love that allowed me to have the time and the ability and the money to be able to play golf, the, the health, like the, like the physical ability to, to twist my back in some ways that probably shouldn't happen, um, right? Like that's all, that's God's love to me. But even in that moment, like it's not only about me, it's supposed to get out of me and be pushed on to others. And we, if we're gonna be fully formed disciples of Jesus, we've got to get to the place where we see ourselves as an extension of God's love wherever we go. Like rather than being only about you, God's love is actually meant to save you from you for others. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us, right? Like we can stop there. Christ's love should control us. But he says, because we have concluded this, one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and for their sake was raised. God's love is not only about you. It's meant to get out of you, onto others, toward others. It completely, when you experience God's love, it completely reorients you. It doesn't happen all at once, right? Like, otherwise, I would not have needed the subtle reminder from my water bottle, of all things, to love this man who's made in God's image. Like, it doesn't happen all at once, but it does happen. If you've experienced God's love, it reorients you toward God and others and away from self. And what this means is that we don't spend our lives pursuing our own agenda. Love of his father meant that Jesus sought his father's will. He says this over and over and over again in the book of John. I'm just gonna pick one. John chapter five, verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Even Jesus was not here to accomplish his own agenda, but only insofar as his agenda lined up with his father's agenda, which was perfectly, but still, he was seeking the father's will. Being Christ-like then means that we will be like Christ and that we're not going to pursue our own will and our own agenda. We're going to pursue his wherever we go. And so that means at your workplace, at your house, with your family, with your church family, like in life group, at your Christmas lunch tomorrow with those people who only ever always want to talk politics and their politics are completely the opposite of your politics and you know it's going to be awkward like you are in that moment you are sent by God to demonstrate his love to that person so your workplace home church family Christmas lunch grocery store right on the phone with the internet people right that have just raised doubled your bill in the classroom where you study, you are sent there by God for his purposes, namely the revealing of his loving heart to the people around you. And I'm telling you, friends, when, when you see that you exist for his purposes and not yours, and that you namely exist to manifest his loving heart to the people around you, when you see that, that will Change. It will transform the way that you think, the things you desire, the things that you speak, how you say what you say, and the way that you act. It will change those things. It's a full reorientation of life. It should change everything. Jesus changes everything. Um, just a quick side note Alpine, you're not leaving, you're not going anywhere. But you are sent to Wardville, to our church. And Wardville, you are sent to Alpine. Like, we need to see this joining together 
uh, as being sent to one another because God loves us and to demonstrate his love. Okay? So if you go out and about and people say, well, why are y'all doing that? You can just simply give the answer because God loves us. So Wardville, why are y'all shutting things down there and moving over to a different church? Why is that happening? And you could say, because God loves us and God loves Alpine. And Alpine, why are, why are those people coming to join with y'all? You say, because God loves them and God loves us. Like we are an extension of his loving heart toward one another. We have the privilege of manifesting his heart toward one another. And I'm so excited about that. May God's love be perfected in us and among us as we reveal his heart to each other. Let me close by saying this. Uh, Experiencing God's love will be costly. You must deny yourself. It will make you genuinely interested in the well-being of others. It will mean sacrifice of time, money, energy, and perhaps even your life for the good of others. It will mean that you operate against your own flesh And it will mean laying your own agenda on the altar of God's will every day. It won't be convenient or easy. It isn't a path toward riches and popularity. But what you get will infinitely outweigh what you lose. You will experience a rich, deep, profound love, inestimable love like you've never known before, but for which you were made. You will have forgiveness, freedom, and life. And it's unequivocally worth it. If you don't know God, if you've not been changed by his love, repent, believe, and receive his love. My prayer for all of us is that we will have our Christmas enriched by this contemplation of God's love. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great love with which you've loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, even when we rebelled against you, even when every thought and inclination of our heart was only evil continually. You sent Jesus because you loved us and to demonstrate your love. Thank you that he fully, perfectly incarnated your precious heart of love. And may we become like him. May we spend our days in the fullness of your love, Father, and reciprocate your love. And may that, the overflow of that boundless love, may it create in us a heart that wants to show other people what your heart is like. Use us in any way you choose and help us to abandon our own agenda that we might know your love that surpasses knowledge. Give us this grace, oh God. Open the eyes of our hearts to see the love that you have for us and the hope to which you've called us. Give us peace, joy, hope, and love. And we pray this through Jesus. Amen.